This episode is brought to you by Podbean. Podbean is an easy and powerful way to start podcasting. We give you all of the tools you need for a successful podcast, such as unlimited podcast hosting, podcast distribution, monetization options for podcasts of any size, and live stream podcasting capabilities. Sign up today at www.podbean.com. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Hey, is this working? I hope this isn't too close because I don't want you to hear all my mouth noises because I know that's very annoying, but here we go. All right, my name is Gabrielle and welcome to a podcast, specifically this podcast, which is a murderous affair. Yes, it's misspelled on purpose, I promise. So I've been a fan of true crime for basically my entire life, probably way before I should have been, to be honest. I think like even in elementary school, I was reading one of Anne Rule's books. I don't remember which one, so it doesn't give you much credence to that story, but I promise you it happened. And I've been recently getting back into this obsession by listening to a podcast that has quickly become one of my favorite of all time and it's called My Favorite Murder. If you have somehow stumbled upon this podcast and have no idea what My Favorite Murder is, then you should definitely go listen to it because it's amazing. Okay, right. So back to the point. The point is that after being a huge fan of My Favorite Murder and another podcast that talks about different women in history, which is called The History Chicks, I thought it would be really cool to kind of combine these ideas into one singular show. And so this is a podcast where I talk about, you guessed it, the different female serial killers, murder and scoundrels and other infamous women throughout history from all over the world. So right now it's just me, Gabrielle, bringing you these stories and histories. I'd love to hear any suggestions from you guys. Obviously I'm really new at this and I'm just kind of going off cases that I personally think are very interesting and that I think other people would also find interesting. If you have any idea right off the top of your head of some different women in history that I should do, definitely let me know via Twitter at Frumius Reads or through like some other way like smoke signals or interpretive dance or something. But yeah, so with that introductional block out of the way, let's go ahead and get started. The murderess of the day is one of the most infamous pirates in history, known only as Cheng Ai Sao. And I know I'm probably butchering that pronunciation. I really looked it up and actually like tried to get it phonetically correct, but Google was absolutely no help and basically pronounced it the exact same way I said it. So yeah, I tried. Anyway, here's the story. Cheng Ai Sao married her husband when she was 26. She either was a prostitute at a brothel or she was running the brothel when they met. There's some stories out there that say that they met at the brothel and he actually had his men raid and destroy it in order to take her away. But then there's also a story that this was an arranged marriage where she agreed to marry him if she was able to have some measure of power while in his fleet. Either way, they ended up getting married and she was actually on her way to creating one of the most formidable pirate empires in history. So at the time of this marriage, her husband Chang Ai was one of of several contenders for power on the coast of China. Just a little history for you guys. Chinese pirates had been serving the King of Vietnam as privateers, but within a very few months, Chang Ai and his wife found themselves at the forefront. Chang Ai Sao helped her husband create from the re- pirate refugees of Vietnamese extermination campaign, a formidable confederation that would dominate the coast. So while Chang Ai Sao's husband was kind of the unifier and the person who would go and get allies, she was the organizer. Together, they had this huge achievement that unified small different gangs of pirates into a giant confederation that by 1804 included 400 ships, 
70,000 men, women, and children. One of these children was actually the future pirate king, Chang Po Tsai, and he had been born a fisherman's son in the Jiang, oh god, there's so many names here, in Jiangmen City in 1783. At the age of 15, he was kidnapped and he was put into service in Chang's fleet. So he was already kind of talented at being on boats and working on the water, and his natural talent helped him adapt to his new career. Um, he caught Chang's eye, and some rumors have it that the pirate ruler took the young man as a lover. Um, he also took him on as his protege, and at some point, he and Chang Ai Sao adopted the young man to make him their legal heir. So Chang Ai Sao is basically the co-ruler at this point with her husband, Chang. They now have a protege, and everything's kind of like they're unifying all these other pirates. Um, they're making this gigantic armada, and it's actually outnumbering the, the fleets of government ships that the Chinese empire had at the time. And then Chang Ai Sao's husband died. Some people say that he died in a typhoon. Some say that it was an accident falling overboard. And some people even point their fingers at Chang Ai Sao or at their new heir saying that they had murdered him together. After her husband's death, Chang Ai Sao had to act really fast before the empire she had started to build began to fall apart. The first step was to solidify a partnership with their official heir, Chang Po Tsai, and soon she started dating him as well, despite the fact that legally she was the younger man's mother. Chang Ai Sao's leadership techniques were really simple, but super effective. She moved to create and intensify the personal relationships that would help legitimize her rule um, in the eyes of her followers and at the same time allow her to exercise authority. So basically she went through and talked to all of her husband's supporters and kind of proved like, look, I was the mastermind behind this and this and this and this is the reason why you should support me while I'm still in power so that we don't have to change our entire way of life. She knew she needed to stop the opposition to her rule before people who had followed her husband got it into their heads to try and take over now that he was dead. She was able to get support for from all of her husband's most powerful allies. So that her second act um, to kind of establish herself as a leader was to balance the different factions of pirate gangs that she and her husband had gathered around them. She played off the loyalty that those factions had to her husband and um, kind of made herself indispensable, like really made herself a leader that they could rely on to get things done. And ultimately she was able to retain the allegiance of all these different factions. And I say factions, I mean like, these are like thousands of people that she was able to obtain the allegiance of and keep even after her husband's death. So she was able to persuade everyone that their best interest lay in collaboration, um, but really kind of secured her position at the top of the pirate hierarchy was the creation of a new leader to replace her husband as the commander of the most powerful faction. So each of these factions had different names and they kind of went off by color. So there was the red flag, black flag, yellow flag, blue flag, and green flag, um, and they were called squadrons instead of factions, but I keep using the word faction, so we're just going to roll with that. So she was able to maintain her leadership over the red flag, which was the largest one in all of those groups. So after establishing her kind of power and her place at the top of the hierarchy, she controlled the southern coast of China. She actually holed off fleets of the government and demanded tributes from locals. But even though she demanded tributes, that tribute also came with a guarantee of protection. So if any other pirate who was not part of her fleet tried to loot or harass a town who had paid tribute or ships from those towns who had paid tribute, um, those pirates were beheaded and buried at sea. Um, and that was kind of typical of the, of the code that Chiang Ai Sao imposed 
impose on her fleet. Um, she had very harsh discipline. So any pirate who tried to disobey an order was put to death. Sex with female captives in general was forbidden. Um, and if the sex was consensual between both parties, they were both put to death. Usually the man was put to death by beheading and the women were put to death by drowning. Also, those pirates who went ashore without permission or who stole treasure were also killed. Treasure normally went into a communal pot and was divided in shares based on the rank. Strangely enough, deserters were not killed, but they actually had their ears removed before being paraded before their former comrades to show them the penalty for such a crime. And then, of course, anyone who saw them in town kind of knew their story based on the fact that they had no ears. So this fleet was so big that their towns were actually considered to have to be their subjects. So the justice also applied to the fleet's subjects. So when two towns tried to band together to send an army against the fleet, Chang Ai Sao's fleet responded by wiping out both the armies and the people who stayed behind in the towns, especially killing all the adult males that they found there. And what's interesting is that on more than one occasion, Westerners who were held captive by these pirates, according to one observer, violators of the law were chastised with incredible efficiency. So obviously like they were serious about these rules, y'all. Besides strictly enforcing her code, Chiang Ai Sao exercised further control over the pirates by conducting business transactions. Each undertaking had to be cleared with her and only after receiving her permission could an operation be carried out. At the end of any mission, the treasure had to be surrendered for group inspection and entered into the ship's ledgers by the pursuer or the accountant. Chiang Ai Sao alone decided who to reward and who to punish. When she spoke, basically everyone obeyed, like everyone jumped to her orders. And then at the same time, Chiang Ai Sao tried to further her control over the pirates by manipulating their religious beliefs. So she really relied on her adopted on her adopted son slash boyfriend, Cheng Po Tsai. Like other boat dwellers of the South China Sea, the pirates of the six factions never set sail and would never undertake a mission unless the omens were good. Basically, she and Cheng Po Tsai kind of made it almost like every time that they succeeded in either raiding a town or in battle, that it was because of the orders that they had obeyed. Um, so they were being given good omens. And so it was only under their leadership that these omens were good. It was, it's really interesting to think about it. Like she was so adept at controlling the people under her that she was able to make them believe believe that she had like religious importance and that made them even more both in awe and afraid to disobey her. It's really interesting. So in addition to that political and religious authority she had, she also demonstrated even more power as if she didn't have enough already by taking more responsibility for the creation of financial and military organs necessary for the pirate's daily survival. So not only at this point was she kind of like, oh, I'm in charge of everything and none, like, and everyone kind of was like, yeah, okay, you are. She realized that maintaining all these several of, several tens of thousands of individuals required more than just, like, a possibility of getting treasure at sea. She had them actually gain a regular source of income by extending their domination to the salt trade. So at this time, they had a couple different island fortresses, um, and they began to make a series of coordinated attacks that succeeded in capturing fleet after fleet until a one point only four of the government's 270 officially built boats remained outside their control and by doing this they were able to really kind of just take control of all the supply lines by forcing those captures to continue to haul salt on the pirates terms so if anyone wanted salt who were within those trade lines they had to negotiate with the pirates and in turn the pirates were getting paid for basically creating this income or for basically creating the supply and demand after being overtaken again and again salt merchants 
merchants soon found that it was better to negotiate directly with the pirate leaders, and they ultimately would like surrender tons of money to guarantee the safe passage of their ships. So rather than constantly trying to sail and not get captured, they chose to instead negotiate for their passage and ended up paying the pirates even more. It got to the point where eventually they had developed the pa- this practice enough so that any salt leaving within their trade lines had to be first bought from them and they needed to get safe conduct certificates at a standard rate of 50 Spanish dollars for each 100 pounds of salt. So as they continued to grow in size and strength, they were soon able to demand similar payments on a regular basis from the merchant and fishing ships of the region as well. Did they start forcing the salt traders to pay for this safe travel certificate? They also had just different fishing boats and different any kind of merchant boat coming in and out of those supply uh, routes had to also own a certificate like this. In return for getting for paying them these sums and getting that certificate, the owners of the ships received documents that exempted them from attack. And then in the end, they even were able to extend their system to land. So as their activities expanded, Shanghai Sao found herself with a financial operation that needed coordination from both land and sea. So what she did as its head is she oversaw the establishment of financial offices in villages and harbors along the coast. She basically made a banking system just for her fleets of pirates. In the major port cities, she and her agents even went so far as to establish tax offices to collect her fees. And then they had one real headquarters of the confederation where agents of the pirates sold fishermen and shippers documents protecting them from attack while at the same time supplying their pirate employers with weapons and ammunition. So because now her trade expanded from both the sea onto land, the pirates ended up taking a lot of precaution to ally themselves with the onshore society to establish a supply network that extended throughout the entire province. And then pirates also cooperated with the province's secret societies and local bandits to gather intelligence and local information. Some of the pirates' strongest allies were actually the very officials that were charged with their suppression. For the pirates' agents and people they trusted on the land had infiltrated certain governments as well. So basically, they controlled the seas, the trade, and essentially the government, but only when it concerned themselves. Without first buying protection certificates and by extending their sea operations to the land, her pirate armada built a practically indestructible empire. Like, they were the ones who were in charge of most of the economic estate on the coast. So Cheng Ai Sao was basically Batman, but as a female pirate against everyday thugs. She was able to deploy her forces up and down the coast, plan her offensive well in advance, and her plans would almost always succeed. So by 1804, her pirate armada had terrorized the Cantonese Navy to the extent that admirals in the Navy spent most of their time on shore. And of course, their excuse when asked was that they were waiting for favorable winds to carry in their favor so that they can go and confront these pirates, obviously. By the end of the decade, this situation had gotten so bad that the military personnel were too afraid to go into sea at all, and they were sabotaging their own vessels in order to have an excuse for why they couldn't go out onto sea and confront Cheng Ai Sao. Of course, as per usual with all these things and the need for drama, tensions between the pirate leaders in Cheng Ai Sao's armada threaten the confederation from within. Even though she has this whole power structure set up, she's got basically everyone 
one on land and sea under her control. Different pirate leaders wanting more power led to tensions being created. At this point, Cheng Aisao realized that she had gathered so much wealth and power that she didn't even need to continue as a pirate in order to maintain that. At this time, the Chinese dynasty was willing to compromise with her and her fleet by allowing them to surrender without getting any charges taken against them. This was a route that they were planning on taking because of all the infighting and the worry that everything that Cheng Aisao had set up in her fleets were going to collapse from within. In the beginning, it was going really well, but negotiations with the government soon deadlocked, and for several weeks, the situation hung in limbo with nothing from either side. Cheng Aisao decided to take the initiative. She's like, you know what? You guys aren't getting anything done. I'm going to do this for you. Um, And she went unaccompanied and unarmed, like the gangster she is, to the governor general against the objections of her subordinates in April of 1810. So she basically sailed up in her own little boat by herself to confront the head of the government that they had sent to negotiate the surrender. Obstacles soon begin to emerge for Cheng Ai Sao. She insisted that her adopted son, Cheng Po Tsai, should be allowed to retain 80 ships for himself and additional 40 for employment in the salt trade. And basically at this point, she holds all the cars. The government is basically begging the pirates to surrender just because they have no control of their own coasts. All the other countries are both like laughing at them and furious because it's gotten to the point that any ship from any country has to buy these protection certificates so that they aren't completely overrun by this pirate navy. At the same time, the Chinese navy is so afraid of going in the water that they are self-sabotaging their own ship. So Chiang Ai-sao basically has all of the power. When these negotiations come to a stalemate, she just threatens to return to her former activities unless they yield to her demands. So two days later, the governor general once again agreed to meet the pirates. They met and the negotiations proceeded smoothly and the procedures for the final surrender were set down. So not only was Chiang Ai-sao able to negotiate a surrender on her terms with the government, but they were given rewards for surrendering. Um, these rewards were distributed liberally to all the pirates, and in the end, her adopted son and boyfriend at this point, Chiang Po Tsai, was allowed to retain a ton of vessels under his direct commands. She had actually negotiated so that he and all the other pirate leaders were offered places in the bureaucracy and military commissions. Chang Ai Sao and Chang Pao settled down into their respectable retirements with the proceeds of their life of crime. They didn't, the government didn't even take the proceeds that they had earned. So all the treasure and everything that they had earned from their life of piracy was able to stay with them. And they got paid on top of that for surrendering. And in 1813, Chang Ai Sao actually had her first child, which was a son. In 1822, Chang Ai Sao's second husband died at sea. So Chang Ai Sao moved her family back to the her old hometown of Guangzhou. There, she opened a gambling house and brothel. She lived to see her son grow up and died in her bed surrounded by her family in 1844. Fun fact, um, Cheng Aisao was actually the inspiration behind the character of Ching, who was one of the pirate lords in the third Pirates of the Caribbean movie. So that was the life and legacy of Cheng Aisao. Now, I'm not saying that she was a good person at all, but I am saying that if I had the choice to be a pirate queen, back in the 1800s, I think I would definitely do it. I would probably die at sea within my first year, 
but I would definitely do it. So that concludes my first episode of A Murderous Affair. I would love to know what you guys think of this episode, and seriously, if you guys have any tips, let me know. Um, I love feedback. You can get a hold of me at Fermius Reads on basically every social media handle, and if you're interested in following to hear more about this podcast, you can find it more on frumiusreads.com slash a murderous affair. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I'd love to know what you think. It's been a ton of fun, like, looking up these different women in history, uh, so I'm really excited to come back again with another episode and let you guys know what the next murderous affair will be on. But thank you so much for listening, um, and I'm gonna go now, so I will talk to you guys later. Okay, goodbye! This episode is brought to you by Podbean Live. Podbean Livestream is a unique platform for turning your podcast production into a live show. It's open to any podcaster on any hosting site. Easily invite multiple co-hosts and guests to join your live stream. Earn money from live show ticket sales and get listener rewards and engage your audience in new and exciting ways. Ready to get started? Sign up today at www.podbean.com slash live. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com slash live.